So, uh, real quick, before we get started, there are some audio quality issues with this episode. Uh, We do apologize. We are new to this whole podcasting thing. We're still trying to figure some stuff out. So I hope you will love us through this trying time. And now on to the disclaimer. Outlaws and Scorned Women is intended for entertainment purposes only. Nothing on this show should ever be construed as actual legal advice. Also, it is chock full of adult content, so we do recommend a little bit of listener discretion. Always, it always feels weird to like talk to the microphone as though I am speaking to people who are not here. <laughs> <laughs> I only talk to you. I don't like know who these other people. Well, are. <laughs> like, but right now I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to the audience real quick and bring them into the room with us, and that's that's like, hi, I'm playing pretend. 39 years old. I'm a pretend people are listening to this. <laughs> like five or six people are listening to it though. So, like, <laughs> let me get my hairbrush. <laughs> I'm gonna talk into it. I'm gonna lip sync. To Eternal Flame right now. Oh, that was a good one. It wasn't it? Yes. Oh, uh, it had some long notes. Do you remember that center stage at the mall where mm-hmm. you got to like pretend mm-hmm. you were in a studio and you could sing along? Oh, yeah. And then if your mom paid for the deluxe package, you could go to like another room in front of a green screen and we get like dressed up and pretend you were making a music video. Did you ever do that? Oh, we didn't. We got the tapes though. There's oh. a lot. There's a video somewhere. My mom has got to have it somewhere oh, in storage of, of me lip syncing to my bad singing of, I believe it was either Eternal Flame or it was uh, Tiffany. She did that cover of I Think We're Alone Now. I Think We're Alone Now. That yeah. was the other big one. Uh, and there's me with a feather boa just winging it all over. The, whew, like uh, I was feeling that feather boa. I love the time. boa. I think we also did a little uh, Belinda Carlisle. Mm-hmm. Heaven is a place on earth. Oh, yeah. Oh, baby. Yeah. Do you know, you know what, what that's worth? worth. <laughs> that's right. Anyway, I'm going to talk to the invisible people for a second. Okay. Uh, excuse me. <clears throat> hey, everybody. Uh, welcome back to Outlaws and Scorned Women, the podcast that explores the criminal history of the great state of Texas. Uh, my name is Stephanie. I was born in Texas, and I am not a lawyer. Um, who are you? I'm Stephanie. I am a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> One of us is qualified to talk about this stuff. Allegedly. Allegedly. I mean. <laughs> no, I, you, there's, there's like pieces of paper and nice frames on your wall that say that you're qualified to talk about this. Uh, you have a lot more notes. Sorry, on your I did. I took a bar exam in the yeah. great state of Texas. So. Yes. Anyway, uh, so today we're going to be talking about a particular case. Like, man, when this happened, I don't remember when it, it going down, when it actually happened because I was three because this was back in 1983. Uh, but this case was like the murder for, 15 years it was the murder if you were talking about uh somebody getting killed horrifically in the state of texas you were talking about the pickaxe murders in houston about carla Faye tucker uh which what is it what is it with look really notorious murders and they always get their full name i used to distinguish you right like what if what if there were like five other carla tuckers oh and right. you're like no <laughs> no 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 i'm carla marie <laughs> that is not i'm carla ann yeah, Car- <laughs> do not confuse me with carla that makes sense um anyway uh if you were talking about murder in texas you were talking about the pickaxe murders because it, it was so 
sensational and so bloody and so brutal. It was like something out of a horror movie. It was like a, like a slasher fic. It was not something that actually happened like in your town. And it wasn't just the sensationalism of the of the murder itself. It was the fact that it led to a death penalty conviction for a woman. And then it went crazy, international, all over the place. Like I, the UN got involved. The Pope got involved. Um, just people were all over it because this case had elements of it that were like catnip and people wanted to glom onto. And uh, the cynic in me says uh, that they wanted to sort of use it to as a megaphone for their own causes. Like you had teen prostitution. Yeah. Uh, you also had drugs. This was the just say no era. And so uh, you had the the evils of drugs and what drugs could drive somebody to do. And so people glommed onto that. Also, televangelists were really coming into their own right about in the, the early to mid 80s, like the 700 Club was getting off the ground. Uh, Pat Robertson was really starting to like claim a media empire. And so when there was a miraculous 11th hour conversion to Christianity that happened uh, in between the trial and the conviction, uh, suddenly there were all of these people just flocking to that to, to hold her up as sort of a cause. Is it a cause celeb? I don't know. Okay, I think that sounded fancy when I said it. Why don't you Google that real quick and tell me if I'm right. <laughs> uh, but holding her up as like a mascot for for how you know God can reach into your life and, and save you or whatever. This entire story, uh, this entire case is a roller coaster from start to finish. So uh, buckle up, buttercups. Let's get into this. I'm the freaking the Pope. <laughs> Did you say the freaking the Pope? <laughs> <laughs> is that how we're talking about John Paul? It is. Oh, I, bless John um, Paul. All right. The <laughs> freaking the Pope. I got to get through this horrific story <laughs> while trying not to say the freaking the Pope. The freaking the Pope. The freaking the Pope. All right. June in Houston, Texas is a hot, muggy, mosquito ridden affair. Um, the city of Houston, uh, while it is a major metropolitan area, it is essentially uh, a bunch of skyscrapers stuck into a puddle. The, the city is at sea level and below. It's wet. The humidity in the air in Houston is just, it's so thick and clinging. It's like trying to walk through soup. And June is just the very beginning of summertime. But even then, you could be standing outside for just a few minutes, first thing in the morning, the sun ain't even all the way up yet, and you'd already sweat through your shirt and have a half a dozen mosquito bites. So I can easily imagine that on the morning of June 13th, 1983, that Gregory Travers was uncomfortable and very annoyed, standing outside of his apartment waiting for his friend Jerry to come pick him up so he can take them both to work. You see, Jerry's running late, and Gregory knows that Jerry went to a party the night before, so he's probably over in his apartment, hungover, and overslept, and now Gregory's gotta hoof it over to Jerry's apartment and kick his ass out of bed so they're not late for work. So he does. And he makes his disgruntled way over to Jerry Lynn's apartment complex, and he can't help but notice that in the parking lot of the apartment complex, he does not see Jerry's blue El Camino. Weird. Did he, did he already leave? So he goes to Jerry's apartment, he knocks on the door, and the door just kind of swings open. So Gregory steps inside, and he notices right away that something is amiss. Now, for reasons that 
defy my ability to explain. Jerry made a habit of keeping motorcycle parts and tools and things like that inside his apartment, in his, on the floor in his living room. So when Gregory stepped in, and he noticed immediately that those motorcycle parts were not there. He also noticed that the TV and the stereo were pulled down off the entertainment center and, and placed in the middle of the floor. And that's when the smell would have hit him. If you've never smelled large quantities of blood, then let me go ahead and describe this for you. It's a, it's a smell that once you experience it, you do not forget. Back when I was in college, my bicycle and I met a car at speed, and I ended up in the emergency room. Now, uh, my right knee had been busted wide open, and my entire leg, from the knee down to my toes, was just covered in blood. Now, by the time I got to the ER, the bleeding had stopped, so I was not the most urgent case in the room. I kind of got shuffled off to the side to wait, and as I waited, I noticed a smell. It was like I had shoved my face into a bowl full of pennies and hamburger meat. It was metal and meat, and it was so powerful, it just seemed like it crawled inside my nose and it wouldn't go away. I felt like I smelled it for days after, and it was my own blood. I was smelling my own dried blood on my leg. So that is the smell that would have reached Gregory Travers by the time he noticed the TV in the entertainment center. This is one of those moments where life really should have a soundtrack. There really ought to be some quiet, creepy strings or something playing in the background because now Gregory is walking slowly down the hallway towards his friend's bedroom door and this metal meat smell is getting stronger and stronger with every step as he approaches it. And he pushes on the bedroom door and it swings open and there is blood. So much blood. It's soaked into the bed. It's it's splattered all over the floor and on the walls, even up to the ceiling. Just, it is a room full of blood. And there, in the middle of this blood-soaked bed, is the barely recognizable body of his friend Jerry. And on the floor near the bed is the body of a woman who is also very dead. You can tell by how there's a three-foot-long pickaxe lodged in the center of her chest. Well, Gregory does the only sensible thing. He turns on his heel and he runs the hell out of there. He calls the police. And now, the police do everything they can to keep information about a case like this from getting into the media, but... You know what they say about the media, if it bleeds, it leads, and ain't nothing bleeding more than this case right now. And it's 1983, so it's not like there are Twitter alerts or anything. No, what's happening is every broadcast on TV or on radio is being interrupted with, you know, breaking news. Did y'all hear about these two people that totally got pickaxed to death in Houston? Oh my god. Only they, they said it probably a little more professionally than that. Anyway, the news was everywhere, and gradually throughout the day, information about the victims started to get released, and I would like to spend a moment to talk about the victims, because the way this case falls out, uh, they completely get overshadowed by the celebrity of the perpetrator. Um, the, the frenzy surrounding the murderer totally sucks all the air out of the room, and we forget about the people that were murdered. So, Jerry is Jerry Lynn Dean. He was 27 years old. He was a big blue-collar guy, motorcycle enthusiast. And honestly, that's about all we know about Jerry Lindeen, which is unfortunate. The other victim was a 32-year-old woman by the name of Deborah Ruth Thornton. 
She was married, not to Jerry Lindine, and she had a daughter at home. Also, fun fact, uh, Deborah's father was William Gerald List, who was the victim of sorts in the first case that we covered in episode one, the Toddville murder mansion. So, you know, hop back and check that out at some point. So the news is getting out about this, like, slasher movie level murder. This is not something that happens in real life. Uh, this is this has got to be fiction, but it's not. It's a horrible and true reality, and all anybody can do is just sort of stop and stare at the news um, in shock, in maybe slightly titillated disgust, but certainly in a somber, in a somber sort of reverence for the horror of it all. It was not an occasion of celebration, unless, of course, you happen to be in the living room of a little apartment a few miles away from the crime scene. There, in the home of Daniel Ryan Garrett and Carla Faye Tucker, this news media coverage was being met with applause. Giddy laughter. Oh my God. Jimmy, Jimmy, come in here. Get off the porch and come see what's on the TV. Look at this. Oh my God, baby. We are famous. It would be easy to say, and I know because it was said often, repeatedly, for a good decade and a half after this whole thing went down, that Carla Faye Tucker never stood a chance. She was born in 1959, the youngest of three daughters in Houston. Uh, her father was a longshoreman, so he was constantly away from home. Her mother was a semi-professional groupie. She traveled a lot following bands around on tour, so Carla and her sisters were mostly left unsupervised. Carla was smoking cigarettes with her sisters by the age of eight. She was into hard drugs by the age of 11. By the time she was 14, she had dropped out of seventh grade so that she could join her mother as a prostitute, following around such bands as the Allman Brothers Band and the Eagles, which kind of makes me think a little less of the Eagles now, but we move on. By her 20s, Carla Faye had moved on from musicians to bikers, and that is where she met a lady by the name of Sean Dean. Now, Sean was married to Jerry Lynn Dean, and Carla and Sean became immediate friends, but Carla hated Jerry Lynn. They had a long-standing, ongoing feud. So have you, have you ever had that one friend who loves you but hates your significant other? Carla Faye is that friend. So I can only imagine that in an effort to get Carla kind of out of their out of their faces a little bit, Sean and Jerry introduced Carla Faye to Daniel Ryan Garrett, a fellow biker type person. Carla Faye and Daniel got along like a house on fire, and they quickly became that, that crazy junkie couple that makes everyone nervous. The ones that go on like days-long drug binges and then show up to parties uninvited and stand in the corner and watch everything a little too closely. That couple, you know the type. In fact, there was a party. On June 12, 1983, there was a party where all of these paths sort of intersected. Uh, Danny and... Danny Ryan... Daniel Ryan Garrett and Carla Faye Tucker were there with their friend James Liebrandt. They had been binging for days on the, the early 80s forms of, of uppers. There was no crack cocaine yet. That wouldn't be around for a couple more years. Um, and there were no methamphetamines yet. There was just amphetamines uh, in pill form. So they would pop pills like candy and then chase them with booze. And then in this way, they would just stay awake for days at a time. They had been in the middle of one of these days-long binges when they showed up at a party that Sean and Jerry were also at. Now, at this party, Jerry met 
Deborah Thornton. Now, Deborah was there because she had had a fight with her husband, and she was looking to blow off a little steam, so she went to a biker party, and she met a big, friendly slab of biker and and went home with him. And I, no judgment here. I watched every single season of Sons of Anarchy. I understand the appeal. And there's and she there was no way she could have known what a very fateful decision this would have been. Now, we don't have a lot of details about the party itself. We only know a few specific things, so allow me to fill in some narrative. I imagine Carla notices Jerry and Deborah leaving. So, like a good friend, she goes over to Sean and tells her what she saw, and then she and Sean hug it out, they cry into a pint of haagen and then everybody goes to bed and resolves to make better decisions in the morning. I'm just kidding. Carla totally got her boyfriend to help her break into Jerry's apartment and kill him with a pickaxe later. What we know for sure that Carla did is uh, she stole Sean's keys. And then when Sean noticed that her keys were missing, Carla helped her look for them. Which reminds me of that old saying, a drunk will steal your wallet and then apologize. A junkie will steal your wallet and then help you look for it. Carla Faye was a junkie and behaved accordingly. So Carla Faye's got these keys. She and Daniel and James leave the party and they go continue to binge and get and get high for a couple more hours, just ratcheting up their energy and their mania higher and tighter until they're wound up so tight they've just got it. They got to do something. And they do. They decide that they're going to break into Jerry Lynn's apartment and they're going to intimidate him a little and steal some of his stuff because uh, Carla Faye wants some of the motorcycle parts that he's got stashed in his place, and uh, they're going to take some money from him and maybe rough him up a little bit. That's their plan. So they use the keys, they let themselves into Jerry's apartment, and James immediately sets about looting the place, because that's what they're there for. While Carla and Danny look around this apartment, and they see that Jerry Lindine keeps his motorcycle parts and all of his tools in his home. And so on their way through the living room, they, Danny picks up a ball-peen hammer, and Carla Faye, tiny little Carla Faye, picks up a three-foot-long pickaxe, and they head over to Jerry's bedroom. When they get to the bedroom door, they flip on the lights, and they just go screaming into that room. Carla jumps up on the bed and sits on Jerry's chest and holds this pickaxe to his throat, and they're yelling at him. They're screaming, don't you move, motherfucker, or we'll kill you. Well, Jerry reacts as one should react to two crazy-eyed junkies suddenly busting into his room in the middle of the night. He panics. He starts begging for his life. Don't hurt me. Don't kill me. Carla, Danny, what are we doing? What the fuck? Calling them out by name, begging for his life. And because Carla is actually physically sitting on his chest, Jerry reaches up and grabs her by the arms. Well, Danny sees that and he flips out. He takes that ball-peen hammer and he brings it down, whack, whack, on Jerry Lynn's head. The M.E. would later find that any one of these blows to the head would have eventually been fatal to Jerry Lindine. One of the blows in particular internally decapitated Jerry so that his skull was severed from his spine inside of his neck, which caused his airways to fill up with blood. So he starts to make a gurgling noise, the sound of a man trying desperately to breathe through blood-soaked airways. Well, Carla cannot stand this gurgling sound. It just rubs her amphetamine-soaked nerves the wrong way, so she pops up on her feet, she swings that pickaxe way up above her head, and brings it down, shunk, right into Jerry Lynn's body. And she does it again. And she does it again. She had to do it because she had to, quote, stop him making that noise. And every time she swings this pickaxe up over her head, down into the body, over and over, a total of 31 times. Every time? Carla would later claim to anyone who would listen, she has an orgasm. 
But we don't just have to take her word for it, because right about now, James Liebrandt has heard a ruckus. He heard a sound that he would describe to police later as like a broken aquarium pump. And he thought, that's a weird noise. So he followed it to the bedroom just in time to see Carla Faye lifting a pickaxe up over her head. She makes eye contact with James, smiles, moans and shudders, and then brings that pickaxe back down again. So James ran. This was way too intense. It was not what he signed up for. He flees the scene. Well, now Danny's annoyed because he's got to pack up all the stuff that they're going to steal by himself. He leaves Carla alone in the room to go start packing things up. And that's when Carla noticed there was someone else in the room. Cowering on the floor by the wall, hiding under a blanket, was Deborah Thornton, hoping desperately that these two crazy-ass people who had just murdered her one-night stand would not realize that she was there. But unfortunately for her, Carla Fay did notice her. And Carla Fay did the math. The lights were on, their faces were visible, their names were shouted in the room, and they totally just killed a man, so they can't leave Deborah alive. So Carla swings that pickaxe at the quivering blanket-covered form of Deborah Thornton and grazes her on the shoulder. Deborah pops up to her feet and the fight is on. They're struggling over the pickaxe. Danny hears the ruckus from the living room. He comes running in, separates the two women. He's still got the ball-peen hammer. And he swings it once, twice, right into Debbie's head, cracking her skull wide open and dropping her to the ground. Well, Carla's on a roll. She's not about to stop now. She starts swinging her pickaxe, too, and stabs Deborah Thornton with a pickaxe a total of 26 times. The last blow landed so deep within the woman's chest that it got caught up in the ribcage. Carla couldn't pull it back out, so she just left it there. She and Danny packed up what they could of what they intended to steal. They got the motorcycle parts. They got some tools. They got Jerry Lynn's wallet and his keys. They stole his El Camino, and they took off. That's it. They didn't bother to clean anything. They didn't bother to try and cover anything up. They just finished killing some people, stole a bunch of stuff, and left. It was just that cold and callous and uncaring. Now, the aftermath of this horror show was just pure junky stupid. They had all this stolen stuff, but they didn't know what to do with it. So they showed up at Danny's brother's house. Douglas Garrett got to wake up bright and early in the morning to his brother and his and his brother's girlfriend showing up bloody, driving a stolen car full of a bunch of stolen stuff and proudly informing him that they totally just killed Jerry Lynn Dean and whatever bitch he happened to have in his room with him. Douglas doesn't know what to do with this information. He certainly doesn't know what to do with all of the stolen stuff that they hand to him. They hand him the tools, they hand him the motorcycle parts. Carla Fay gives Douglas Jerry's wallet as a gift. And Douglas, in a panic, burns the wallet and then hides all of the motorcycle parts and the tools and stuff in an abandoned lot somewhere. Just disavows all association with it. The El Camino, uh, I think, got shoved into the bayou somewhere. They just ditched everything. So Carla Faye Tucker and Daniel Ryan Garrett brutally murdered two people and then didn't even bother trying to profit off of what they stole. And they didn't bother to hide it. They straight up told Douglas what they did. Later, uh, Carla would tell her sister Carrie all about it and would even brag about uh, how many orgasms she had. And they really enjoyed the ongoing media frenzy. Their 15 minutes of fame, as it were, in the spotlight of, of Texas media. So eventually... 
Douglas gets it right with himself that he's going to have to rat out his own brother. And he calls a family friend who happens to also be a police detective and says, hey, so here's what happened. And he shows the detective the tools and the motorcycle parts. And the police are like, that's all well and good, but we need more information than just you telling us this. Will you wear a wire and get a recording of them talking about it? Douglas agrees. And he wears a wire and he sits down with Danny and Carla, and gets them to talk about it. Now, Carla doesn't say much on the recording, but Danny does. He describes the entire situation all over again, and says that we did this and she did that, and all of this happened, and at no point in the recording does Carla deny it. So they get arrested. Uh, in September of 1983, Carla Faye Tucker and Daniel Ryan Garrett are tried separately. Uh, Daniel does not testify at Carla's trial, but Carla does testify against Daniel and gets her charges in the murder of Deborah Thornton dropped. So she was only on trial for the murder of Jerry Lendine. And let's go ahead and get Daniel Ryan Garrett's uh, fate out of the way because he's not the star of the show. He's just a garden variety psychopath. He got sentenced to death. And while waiting on death row, he died of liver disease in 1993. So that's the end of that chapter. Carla Faye Tucker, on the other hand, in 1983, in somehow in between her trial in September of 1983 and her sentencing in October of 1983, Carla found Jesus, which uh, good for her. Now, I hope you'll forgive me if I sound a little cynical, but the convenience of her miraculously finding God while the courts were in the middle of trying to decide her fate is a bit extreme. And yeah, I am implying that there's a possibility this conversion was uh, designed entirely to manipulate the justice system in a state like Texas that is notorious for its conservative viewpoints and its reverence for Christian values. The court was unpersuaded by this, and Carla Faye Tucker in October of 1983 was sentenced to death row. And that's when the shit hit the fan. Understand, this is the time, this is the early 80s, right? So the televangelists are just starting to come into their power. Pat Robertson is just now building his media empire. The 700 Club is getting started. And they latch onto the story of Carla Faye Tucker and her miraculous salvation. And this is gold for them. She does several interviews where she talks about the change in her life and how she was saved and how it makes her a better person. And okay, to her credit, for the 14 years that she was in prison, she was a model prisoner, sweet as pie, uh, never stepped a toe out of line, certainly never hurt anybody again, had everyone around her from the warden to the prison minister who she married uh, and all of her fellow inmates convinced of the uh, sincerity of her conversion to Christianity, which, again, good for her. I'm not saying that she lied about her conversion. I'm just saying that any one of us that was locked away in a completely controlled environment with all of our choices taken away and nothing to do but stare down the long hallway of the years towards our very certain mortality would be able to find a way to behave ourselves too. Regardless, Carla Faye Tucker had many, many champions begging the governor of Texas for clemency. She had Pat Robertson, the, the televangelist. She had Newt Gingrich, who I believe was Speaker of the House at the time, writing letters. The UN, which is notoriously opposed to the, to the death penalty, um, was applying pressure and writing letters as well. Pope John Paul II made a personal appeal on behalf of Carla Faye Tucker. Even the victim's brother, Deborah Thornton's brother, met Carla Faye Tucker, became friends with her, and, and converted to Christianity himself after talking to her. He begged for clemency. 
The death penalty conviction of Carla Faye Tucker became an enormously polarizing incident in the state of Texas. You were either super in support of her being executed or you were super opposed to it. There really was no middle ground. At her execution in February of 1998, there were people outside protesting both for and against. And their signs were brutal. I'll put pictures up on the blog, you'll see what I mean. Ultimately, all of the pleas for clemency fell upon deaf ears. The governor of Texas at the time, maybe you've heard of him, uh, George W. Bush, he issued a statement, and I did manage to find the audio of that statement, but I don't know about y'all, but I'm a little triggered by the voice of George W. Bush, so I'll go ahead and read you that statement myself. Quote, Carla Faye Tucker has acknowledged she is guilty of a horrible crime. She was convicted and sentenced by a jury of her peers. The role of the state is to enforce our laws and to make sure all individuals are treated fairly under those laws. The courts, including the United States Supreme Court, have reviewed the legal issues in this case and therefore I will not grant a 30-day delay. May God bless Carla Faye Tucker and may God bless her victims and their families. And so the execution of Carla Faye Tucker went forward. On February 3rd, 1998, Carla Faye Tucker's last meal was a peach, a banana, and a garden salad with ranch dressing. And then Carla was wheeled into the execution chamber where she would be given the lethal injection that would end her life. Waiting there to watch were her husband, the prison minister, the warden, Deborah Thornton's brother there to support her, and Deborah Thornton's husband and daughter not there to support Carla Fay. They were there to watch her die. And as Carla Faye was being strapped to the journey and the lethal injection was prepared, she was given an opportunity to say some last words. And here's what she said. I would like to say to all of you, the Thornton family and Jerry Dean's family, that I am so sorry. I hope God will give you peace with this. Everybody has been so good to me. I love you all very much. I am going to be face to face with Jesus now. I will see you all when I get there. And as the lethal concoction of chemicals was moving into Carla Faye Tucker's blood vessels, witnesses overheard Deborah Thornton's husband saying, Here she comes, baby doll. She's all yours. And at 6.45 p.m. on February 3rd, 1998, Carla Faye Tucker became the first woman executed in the state of Texas since 1863. What's up with the death penalty? Oh, huh? my gosh. Well, so it's interesting unpacking. So we've, we've talked about capital punishment a couple times. Mm -hmm. There are certain, the penal code identifies certain criminal homicides as um, making one eligible for capital punishment. Mm -hmm. um, this particular one was a murder that occurred during the course of a robbery. Okay. And that actually becomes relevant to um, one of her points on appeal. She tries to, um, I guess, make a temporal distinction between, well, no, we weren't, this really wasn't occurring. The The robbery um, was an afterthought, not the plan. Oh, so that and way, she tried to say, no, 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 you shouldn't execute me because we were just stole this stuff because it was there. We actually just wanted to pickaxe this guy to death. Oh, like that was her well, defense? It wasn't exactly we just wanted to pickaxe this guy, but yes, she was trying to say that the evidence wasn't sufficient to support the um, the charge under the penal code. And the court wow. slapped that down and said, no, mm -hmm. there's quite enough evidence. And the um, 
it doesn't have to be shown that you coordinated the um, the timing was contemporaneous exactly. There's mm-hmm. enough evidence that y'all planned this robbery and this murder occurred during the the course of. Yeah. So that's interesting. Um, so I have, I'm sure you got some stuff, but I have a basic question. Oh, from, like okay. the start of this trial. Do we have any idea why she pled not guilty? I mean, because, well, because it's the state's burden. I mean. So she has, so, so she's saying, I didn't do it. Tell, prove it, prove it otherwise. I mean, I think, yeah. You would okay. always, um, and you always have that right because mm-hmm. this, um, theoretically, the defendant doesn't have to do anything. The state has to carry its burden on every element of the crime. Okay. And especially to the extent they are seeking um, the the punishment they're seeking, they have to, you know, meet their paces and they have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Now there is some interesting, there's an interesting argument in the appeal. And there could have been a consideration of whether or not she could have been not guilty by reason of insanity. Um, I was going to ask if if they were going to about temporary insanity. So they were, you could tell they were trying to figure out a way Mm -hmm. to get that in there. Were they trying to find a way to say that she was so high that she could not have known that what she was doing was wrong? Yes. Um, Because, and they even tried to, um, they made an argument on appeal saying that um, the question that the jury answered regarding um, temporary insanity based on intoxication, um, they said it was unconstitutional um, because the jury was what the jury would have had to find Mm -hmm. in order to um, mitigate her punishment, meaning like lessen it, Uh was they would have to find that her drug use was um, such that it rose to temporary insanity. And if you remember, we've talked about that before, meaning that she did not understand that conduct was wrong. Mm -hmm. Like she was so intoxicated that she was devoid of that judgment. And so she turned around and said, well, that having the jury make that decision and not be able to mitigate my punishment unless they made that finding is unconstitutional. The court said, wait, the instruction the jury was given Mm -hmm. was the one you asked for. Mm -hmm. Your strategy was to try to put on evidence Mm -hmm. showing that you were so intoxicated, you had this history of drug use, Okay. That it could mitigate your punishment. And, but then to say that. But then to turn around and say it was an unconstitutional jury instruction because it limited the jury's examination of her punishment. The the court said, you don't get to have it both ways. And that's a general rule. But how is that? How, okay. How would that even be unconstitutional? Where in the Texas constitution does it say, were they talking Texas or U.S.? So does it matter? (laughs) that's interesting so unless you um you can raise both Mm -hmm. you can raise one so she um, unconstitutional is a word that gets thrown around a lot absolutely and so she was talking about the u.s constitution okay and so um what's interesting is the the factors imposed like the court couldn't even address for constitutional argument because they looked at it kind of like a waiver you can't get something you requested Mm -hmm. then turn around and challenge it as unconstitutional right and so they said Based on that, we're not going to get to your your constitutional complaint and whether or not there's any validity. Um, oh, God. Okay. Yes. And then... <laughs> what the fuck? The other interesting part is because she was pretty guilty, because there was so much evidence, I think some of the strategic determinations that were made by counsel um, were limited. Mm-hmm. So at one point, instead of saying there was this grievous error because, you know, perhaps... Um, 
the evidence didn't show she did it or because she was insane at the time. None of those were compelling arguments. They attacked the process of clemency. She, late in the day, after her direct appeals are exhausted, she um, she seeks a habeas um, relief. And that is... Um, well, that's a habeas relief. So habeas relief is you're challenging the lawfulness of either your conviction or your incarceration. So okay. after you've said, hey, the trial... Mm -hmm. I'm appealing to the court above and the court above that to Mm -hmm. look at my conviction and the trial that has just occurred. Um, It's also their uh, criminal defendants will seek writs of habeas corpus and relief saying my conviction is unlawful for these reasons. So if they can't appeal the conviction, then they will then say, well, this was the whole process was bullshit. It will either be usually... um, Habeas petitions are for, hey, I'm actually innocent. There's newly discovered evidence that shows, you know, it wasn't me. Or there was a huge constitutional violation. And so there's a remedy. Mm -hmm. You know, the um, the manner in which I was convicted Mm -hmm. violates uh, my constitutional rights in these ways. So she um, she had a state habeas writ that was denied and a federal habeas writ that was denied. But the state one was interesting because she was challenging clemency and the process for clemency, saying that she didn't have there was no meaningful opportunity for her um, plea for mercy to be reviewed. And the courts rejected that. Um, because clemency is a function of the executive. It is the discretion of the governor Mm -hmm. to decide whether or not he wants to grant clemency. There is separation of powers for a reason. Okay, yeah. And so one branch can't just take over the other branch's responsibilities and try to do it for it. Like, okay. each branch Damn, is co-equal. Is like some nitty-gritty, like, yeah, bones so. of government shit. Everything I know about the clemency process, I learned from the West Wing, which is uh, okay. that uh, Jed Bartlett thinks about it really hard, and there's some, some snappy patter for a little bit, and then maybe, like, at the end, there's a dramatic swell of music, and the paper, the, the camera zooms in, and the paper's got a signature on it. That's all I know. Uh, right. Do you That's... know anything about the clemency process so, in Texas? The the clemency board, there is a board that reviews applications mm-hmm. and um, makes recommendations to the governor, and they did not recommend clemency in her in her case. Okay. But she challenged the the nature of that review. Did like, they say why they did not recommend clemency or do they have to say why? They don't have to say why. They okay. don't have to give a report. It's, you know, mm-hmm. they make a recommendation and the, the governor can act on it. And what's interesting is the, the court was like, this is not a proper, um, the filing she made was not the proper vehicle to challenge the clemency system. Okay. Um, then her claim, she didn't really have standing to challenge the clemency um, system because it's a function of discretion. Okay. And so mercy is because something it's, it's up to that you don't governor. deserve, you don't have a right or an interest mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. And so um, I thought that was a, an interesting direction of their appeals because... Uh, how many appeals did she have? Because like this got up to, to SCOTUS. It got all the way up to the Supreme Court. It did. So she had a couple, um, the actual trial... As it goes up on appeal and goes up mm-hmm. on appeal, if it's a capital punishment, you can appeal it all the way up to the Supreme Court and they'll rule on it. And then um, she also had her writs where she was challenging. Mm-hmm. I believe there were two appeals that went to the um, U.S. Supreme Court. Both were denied. You know, was her lawyer just like trying everything? 
I think um so right. The lawyer has um you have the facts mm-hmm. that you're dealt. Right. And the state of the facts that were in play at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, um recognizing the witnesses, recognizing the um the nature of the crime and all of the corroboration mm-hmm. that occurs internally, the weight of the evidence is something the lawyer is going to consider. So they're making the best arguments. Some of them are, are legally clever mm-hmm. arguments because that's what you got. When there's an expression in law, when um, when the facts are on your side, you argue the facts. Mm-hmm. When the law is on your side, you argue the law, you know? Oh, okay. And so um, you're going to try to make arguments. So and they're str- not arguing the facts because the facts are not on their side. The facts are they're not arguing helpful. the law. So they're arguing the law. Absolutely. And when the facts and the law are not on your side, what do you do? I mean... You run for president? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what happens oh, 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 my goodness. Oh, oh, the pain. oh it uh, relates. <laughs> so um, interestingly, some of the arguments had some weight, but then remember we've talked about um, the, the level of error that would be required to overturn mm-hmm. the jury's verdict. Right. Right. Um, you would because have to the... show that you're prejudiced by the error. And mm-hmm. so when you have facts that are this way, it's very difficult to show that an mm-hmm. evidentiary ruling of the judge was such that it would cause mm-hmm. the wrong decision in the case. Um, and so she exhausted every avenue of appeal. So yeah. this is this is where I, I kind of get, uh, I sort of get into a debate with myself about this because like, what is prison for if not for rehabilitation? And she had 14 years of perfectly sweet behavior of like she stepped no toe out of line this is according to everyone who was involved you're making faces this is according to everybody who was involved in her incarceration but for she 14 was very years, well behaved she was a model citizen in prison where she couldn't in a- right if you take somebody's entire set of freedom and choices away uh sure they're probably going to be pretty well behaved because right. death row is is not the same as regular prison. It's death fucking row. So perhaps she had turned her life around. Perhaps she was mm-hmm. a changed person. That's right. I mean, A, I mean, we've talked about what prison's for. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see if I've learned. Um, it's for rehabilitation. Of course, it's yes. Hopefully. Uh, it's for getting them the hell away from us. That's Incapacitation. Right. That's right. Uh, getting somebody. And uh, I don't know your fancy word for paying your debt to society. Retribution. Retribution, sure. So, yeah. So rehabilitation, like, it seemed like a lot of people were saying she's a totally changed woman. She's totally been rehabilitated. She Mm -hmm. just, she doesn't even want to be free. Just let her live her life ministering the the word of God to other prisoners. Mm -hmm. The place where I get stuck is if you do grant clemency because now she is a Christian, that's that's a serious blurring of church and state. That's you converted to Christianity. So now we're not going to kill you. But then, you know, I, I think about what we talked about. I think it was last time about the the state having to prove the thoughts in your head, mm-hmm. having to prove motive. That state can't prove your motive. Wouldn't that like your change? <clears throat> what am I trying to say? That the state can't prove that you're really a Christian. Mm-hmm. Well, and so the act of giving her clemency, mm-hmm. it is an act of mercy. It's mm-hmm. a we've for whatever reason, decided to commute your sentence. So I I do think it's interesting that in this case, there was so much... Mm -hmm. There was so much pressure. There was so much pressure because she was a woman Mm -hmm. and because of her conversion Mm -hmm. and because it had gained so much attention. Right. But um, one of the arguments that I forgot to bring up earlier is she challenged challenged her conviction because she was saying that part of getting the death penalty, one of the issues that the jury has to 
to um, determine in the affirmative Mm -hmm. is that she, um, that there was a probability that she would be a continuing threat to society, right, right. that she would commit criminal acts mm-hmm. of violence. She would constitute a continuing threat. And she was like, there is not sufficient evidence. And mm-hmm. that was so rejected. Right. The, the court said, no, there was sufficient evidence. Yeah. There, you there were, were violent acts mm-hmm. throughout your past. Yeah. The, the glee, mm-hmm. which she had in, uh, the fact that she literally got off on it. That's right. She showed no remorse Zero. until she was arrested. She, yeah. She, so she showed no remorse until, uh, uh until she converted, like mm-hmm. until, until the consequences really started to so, be real. Right. She, she bragged about her participation mm-hmm. and they were like, you are completely willing mm-hmm. to engage in these violent, in fact, you instigated brutal it. acts. Yeah. And so they were like, we, they found um, that the evidence supported the jury's mm-hmm. decision. And they were like, you have this, this dangerous aberration of character. And I think that, that weighs into mm-hmm. it. You know, if you were going to um, commute a sentence, there should be some, the facts matter. Right. There should be a story I almost think narratively, if her convenient conversion to Christianity had happened prior to being arrested, if the reason she got arrested was because she suddenly got a visit from the Holy Spirit and realized the error of her ways and went weeping into the police station and confessed, that would be a very different story. That is a different story. Right. And that's a different set of facts. Right? And that would be a clemency, I think, rich Absolutely. situation. But as it is, her seeing the light didn't happen until suddenly there were consequences. Right. And and she was really going to be executed right. for her crimes. Then everything became very real and mm-hmm. everything became very, uh, I don't know, man. I think it's just... <sighs> so it's hard. My problem with the death penalty is not the the finality of it mm-hmm. um if if somebody exhausts their appeals and if we're you know to a certitude this person committed x crime i am okay that there are certain things that are so heinous that maybe you don't get to exist with the rest of us anymore mm-hmm. my problem is in the application right. that there there are now there have been people that are exonerated based yeah. on dna evidence yeah there we, to our knowledge, innocent people have been executed. Oh, yeah. And then in the application, this whole case kind of smacks of my problem. Well, I'm sorry that, you know, a um, charismatic white woman <laughs> was, is is now up for execution. Mm-hmm. But it seems like what, you know, what has happened is sometimes the death penalty is more liberally applied when the victim is white or when the perpetrator is uh, a black man or Mm -hmm. some other factor that isn't the crime itself and the the weight of the evidence and you know whether or not it should be elevated to a capital crime that is and so my struggle is Mm -hmm. i'm not 100 percent sure in our application yeah i think like I, I mean, I'm raised in Texas, right? So the death penalty has has is as common as oxygen. It's just something that it's an environmental truth. And my problem with the death penalty is, I our justice system is not infallible. Mm-hmm. If we could 100% trust that that the justice system was correct, then I would be less uncomfortable mm-hmm. with the death penalty. Right. But I I don't know. There was that. I don't know if you remember um, this one traumatized me. There was that horrible dragging death of um, right. James Beard. Yes. Mm-hmm. Am I at all losing sleep about the application of the death penalty? Nope. Those monsters. Not, Mm-mm. you know. Um, and I, I do believe that there are some people that the crime is so heinous. Right. 
I don't, I don't know what we do. And the, the argument then by, by people who are opposed to, death, to the death penalty is, well, then just lock them up forever. Just just lock them up forever. And like, okay, I, I'm not opposed to doing that. I don't know. This no, is and, I, and I'm, I'm right there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, the only thing that, you know, the death penalty does that life imprisonment doesn't do mm-hmm. is, is a final solution and a taking of life. Now, does that mean it's okay for the state to do that? Or is life maybe so important and right. so valuable that not even the state should sully its hands? You know? Right. Um, is it the business of the state to decide if you live or die? Right. In Texas, but, yes. But it is. Yeah. I mean, okay, so a state, a government, mm-hmm. like one of the um, one of the main attributes of government mm-hmm. is a, con- a monopoly over the violence. That, yeah. So when you're talking about government, when you're talking about a state, a territory, a nation, mm-hmm. like a sovereignty, um, you have a territory, mm-hmm. like that means boundaries. You have a people, mm-hmm. and you have a monopoly over the violence. Like you are the enforcer of the laws. You are the imprisoner. Oh. You are the one that wages war, that defends the the population. So it, it's just kind of a um, a convenient expression you know, for... Yeah, because anybody mm-hmm. else... I mean, we could on an individual basis dabble in the violence, but it's like trying to compete with Walmart. <laughs> like, or Amazon. Like, no. Right, so the, I'm never going to be able to... So I'm, I'm trying to, to humanize the state the by saying maybe the state wouldn't... But of course the state would be the one to carry out an execution because it's also the one that would imprison somebody. It is the one that, you know, is mm-hmm. going to be bringing the SWAT right. to, to defend us against... Um, what's really particularly surprising, I think, is looking at it, looking at this case from now, Mm -hmm. from the current political climate, looking back at 1998, 1998, where the very Republican, soon to be president, governor of Texas, did not commute the sentence of someone. And he was being pressured by, um, God, who was it? Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich. That's right. Of all people. I think he was speaker at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, was was begging for clemency. The Pope was begging for clemency. Mm-hmm. All of the televangelists, all of his base, mm-hmm. George W. Bush's base, were screaming at him. And But he sided with the rule of law mm-hmm. on this. And he said that the courts had rejected all of these appeals. I'm not going to, I'm not going to overturn what the courts did. And like, that wouldn't, I don't feel like that would happen today. See, I don't know. I thought it was a legitimate choice. I think you could also follow the line of a lot of the, a lot of the groups that were lining up and aligning um, with Carla Faye Tucker were already against the death penalty. But some were not. And then, uh, right. You and had then, very conservative entities like Newt Gingrich. Right. And then you had like this kind of this glance towards her being, you know, a woman being a, a woman being executed. Right. Now, and not just any woman, are a we, cute little white lady. Are we going to signal that? We don't execute women, right? For the for heinous crimes that we would execute or, men, or are we going to signal that we don't execute Christians, right? For heinous crimes, like that, those are dangerous precedents to set. I am That's not right. arguing with his decision. I'm saying <laughs> I'm saying that if this all happened now in 2019, mm-hmm. I think it would go differently. So I don't. I I think it's interesting. I, um, every uh, court of appeals decision that I read, and even the the um, denial of her federal um, mm-hmm. habeas writ, they, they describe the facts because the yeah. court puts in context, like this isn't just a dance of what mm-hmm. um, balls and strikes were called in the courtroom and, you know, what this um, petitioner is mm-hmm. alleging now. They're like, hold on. There is a really gruesome set right. of murders 
that went fully through the process that, you know, was tried before a jury with mm-hmm. counsel on both sides, ably arguing. Uh, they've got the receipts. Let's review. One, two, three. <laughs> what did you do? Here's what you did. Do you have anything to say that you didn't do this? No, but you're Christian now? That's great. So you know so, where you're going when we kill you. Well, I don't. I also think about, I mean, we, we talked about this last time. A lot of people have crap lives. A lot of people use drugs and a lot of people were perhaps trafficked as teenagers by irresponsible parental figures and they don't pick up a pickaxe. They don't steal somebody's keys from a party yeah. and plan on wandering it's, in and then weapon up as soon as they get into somebody's home. And and then swing a pickaxe 50 plus times I mean. into their bodies long after they're dead. I don't know, man. I just, The state killed her and the state of Texas continues to do this. And each case is is its own unique, enormously complicated situation. So, so. The Innocence Project. Tell me about this. So, um... Oh my God, do we have something uplifting at the end of this? Well, no, no, it's <laughs> no. even worth like... Oh no, shit. The, the Innocence Project does have um, stats and they have shown the number of people that have been exonerated by evidence that has come mm-hmm. after. And oh my God. they have um, studied so what are the causes of some of these you know, convictions of people who it turns out Mm. to be infirm or or wrongful. And um, I think it's important to have groups like the Innocence Project to work to free and emancipate those who are deserving. You know, if if you have a claim for actual innocence, you know, Mm. hopefully you can find those lawyers like the Innocence Project who are working to save the lives of and free those people because our judicial system is not infallible that's right there human beings are involved uh but i think uh it looks like i was wondering going into this if we were gonna agree yeah uh but it looks like we agree (laughs) Uh, we both have i'm sorry there's not like a push and pull or a back and forth on the cynicism of of Carla Faye Tucker's miraculous conversion to Christianity just in time to get sentenced. Well, I mean, um, I kind of do hope you find I, like I sure tried to put myself in the mind of what if I did something horrible and revolting, mm-hmm. and how would I square that with my brain? And I think you pluck the eyeballs out of your head yeah. for what you witnessed yourself do. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, but and uh, she said over and over in interviews that she does not talk about it. She does not talk about the details of that night. She doesn't even like to think about it. She. And she never did. But even so. But even so, you fucking did it. And um, yeah. And I mean, the state, it seems that the state of Texas, I mean, we've talked about this before. It seems the state of Texas is going to take their pound of flesh. Mm-hmm. You did the thing. That's right. And you will pay the price for the thing. And we have judged that the price is your life. Mm-hmm. And uh, good God. <laughs> That's right. No. And, and Texas is serious about it. And uh, I, I think... Uh, Texas is not afraid. And I think George Bush showed that then. Texas is not afraid to just go ahead. Texas is a state that has the death penalty. Mm -hmm. And in those cases where the jury has found somebody guilty of a capital crime Mm -hmm. and then assessed their punishment at death. And that's just... You remember... uh, Every time I think about the death penalty in Texas, I remember there's an episode of The Simpsons. Where uh, Bart and Milhouse are like at an arcade. They're playing a, a stand-up arcade game where like 
I don't know, Bart's like Robin Banks or something. He's a criminal. He's Robin Banks, his little 8-bit scream. And he's like, oh no, you've been caught. You've been arrested by the fuzz. Quick, quick, hit the change of venue button. And he smacks <laughs> the change of venue button and it's like a randomizer. And, and then, oh no, you got Texas. And he gets oh. executed and he loses the game. And there's like a little Yosemite Sam on the screen with his guns like pew, pew, pew doing a little dance oh i love the simpsons and i don't remember that one so what i'm saying is uh this is kind of the death penalty is kind of our thing there's a lot of a lot of aspects of texas law that we're gonna get into Mm -hmm. that are never gonna come anywhere near the level of notorious as our application of the death penalty that's right and like yay so i think i (laughs) congratulations for us (laughs) so i guess uh moral of the story is don't kill people with pickaxes. Moral of story because is... Don't do it in Texas, because we'll kill you for it. <laughs> don't kill people with a pickaxe. If you're going to do that, you go somewhere else where they won't kill you for it. Well, all right. Thanks for hanging in there, y'all. We sure do appreciate you. If you are enjoying Outlaws and Scorned Women, uh, please go to whatever podcast platform you're listening on and uh, leave us a five-star rating uh, and maybe a review. I'm told that that's the kind of thing that really helps our podcast get uh, more exposure and more listeners, which is always a good thing. If you would like to reach out to us with any uh, questions or suggestions of stories for us to cover, you can reach us at outlawsandscornedwomen at gmail.com. You can also find us on all of the social medias at OSWPodYall. That's at O-S-W-P-O-D-Y-A-L-L. As always, neither of us are journalists or investigators of any kind, so I will be posting links to all of our sources for this podcast on the blog, along with pictures of the cast of characters involved. And, uh, yeah, I think that's it. So y'all have a good one, and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.